0: Welcome to Wayne's World. It's Wayne's World with
1: Wayne Goldsmith. Our very popular Wednesday morning segment just after the 10 o'clock news every Wednesday is Wayne's World featuring Wayne Goldsmith. WGCoaching.com is the website. Good morning, Wayne. How's the lovely Gold Coast?
0: Well, it's not so lovely, mate. It's actually, it's reminding me of the wonderful times I'd have in New Zealand. It's cold, it's wet, it's rainy, believe it or not, and it's the last place you'd want to come for a holiday. Well, that's not very good because that's, that's where I'm coming for a holiday on Tuesday. Yeah, the little bird told me that. I thought it would make you feel welcome. No, the, today the sun is just starting to sneak out a little bit. Apparently we've had about three months of rain in the last week and that would be fairly accurate looking at the pile of washing we've got to do for the kids over the next few days. But uh, no, hopefully the sun will come out, it will settle down and you'll get some wonderful weather while you're over here.
1: Looking forward to that. All right. Uh, our text line, 5009. If you have any questions that you'd like uh, Wayne to have a crack at answering this morning, 5009 on the text. You can visit his website, wgcoaching.com. We want to talk today about coaches, actually, and the fact that coaches uh, very rarely stay at the same club for their entire coaching career. Um so can we talk about, first of all, the selection of coaches at the elite level? How would an NRL or an AFL or a, or a super rugby team, what's the process around the way in which they select their coaches?
0: Well, oh, it's shown so much, Piney. I know when I first started getting involved in the industry in the late 80s, uh, the 1980s, not the 1880s sometimes it feels like that, but the 1980s it was, it was usually a member of the board, and quite often a former elite player from the club, maybe someone who'd played at Test level, or someone who knew the game quite well. But it it, it was it was it was just like a, a standard interview process where someone would come in, they'd present their bona fides to the group, and and uh, it, the decision was made relatively quickly. And quite often around their playing record. And since then, it's transformed. It's it's quite remarkable now. And the, the professional codes are often getting the big management groups involved who are doing some background work. They're doing some consulting and looking at their record. They're doing mental and emotional uh, inventory, so doing testing, mental and emotional testing. Uh, they're asking, and one of the most common things they do, Pioneer, is they say to the coach, if you had this job and if you had this group of players, show us your vision. Show us what you're going to do. How would you take our team forward over the next two to three years and quite often men in that group not only do they have a couple of board members, CEO, someone from one of the big management consulting groups but quite often they'll have one or two of the senior players in there as well who are increasingly having influence over the way coaches are recruited and selected.
1: Is there a temptation or or I know that there is so how big is the temptation to hire a name? Somebody who has been a big name player Uh, but may not necessarily have the coaching credentials that other candidates might, but they are a name. How big is that temptation amongst the the clubs we're talking about?
0: Yes, it it is a frighteningly common issue, isn't it, that we see someone who's come straight out of the All Blacks or straight out of the NRL ranks, and someone will say, well, clearly they're a great player, they're a good on-field leader, therefore they can coach. And I often say to people, what you're really doing in that case You're saying that someone can go straight out of year 13 high school and the next year they can be teaching high school again. The set of skills for coaching are very, very different. And sure, players have got an understanding of the game. They've got an empathy with other players. They understand what it feels like to have been a player at that level. However, the set of skills we want from coaches, emotional connection, leadership, being a visionary team development, all those things that we expect now of a high-performance coach is a completely different set of skills. But what what is good, though, Piney, is that the, the professional codes are all now got what we call transitioning programs, so that when we've got players getting towards the end of their career, if they say, look, I think I want to have a go at this coaching thing, there are some accelerated learning and accelerated training programs available in AFL, NRL, rugby certainly, where players can transition into coaching and there's a pathway provided for them from maybe coaching under 16s, under 18s, under 20s, junior grades, and eventually progress through to senior level. But it's a very different set of skills. You could mount an
1: argument, though, Wayne, couldn't you, that having competed at the highest level and gone through everything that a player has had to go through over what, let's say, has been an illustrious career, that they're kind of a lot further down the track in terms of that part of it, understanding what the players are going through. So they might be a pretty good candidate to be a coach.
0: Yeah, that's it. Look, dude, what I generally say, and I do a lot of consulting work with teams on coach selection, and I normally say to them, look, put what you want down on a piece of paper. Just very simple or we'll we'll brainstorm it quite often. And they might say, well, what we want from our head coach, we want a high profile, someone who understands the game, someone who connects with the public. Somebody, it's a huge list, obviously. And I say, all right, well, the list you've given me there, that's like a nine-year-old Santa Claus list. It's, it is everything on there, And there's no one person who can give you what you're looking for. So then we move into the concept of coaching teams. So I might say, all right, we're going to hire a former All Black to be the head coach because they get the game They've got a great feel for the game, a lot of respect with the player group and tremendous relationship with the media and sponsors, which is very, very important part of the business of sport. However, they lack some real depth of expertise, let's say, in set-piece play or, or back-line play or whatever it might be. And then you hire another coach or another two or three coaches who might play high-level technical roles within the team. So you have the head coach or the senior coach and you might have a defensive coach, backs coach, sets piece set piece coach so across those two three four coaches they provide the entire set of skills that the club is looking for at that time so they they, they do do it that way but i encourage clubs when i feel if you're looking down that route if you're looking for the superstar high profile person make sure you've got a complementary set of skills through your coaching group so you've got the whole package that you and your players are looking for
1: regardless of the background of the coach it must be a a challenging time as a new coach coming into a team no matter how much experience you've had previously at other clubs coming into a new team is an entirely different challenge so what do the what do the good coaches do in the first let's say 100 days of their of their new tenure
0: yeah that's a, the 100 days is a, a very common interview technique that people will throw at coaches when they are people in, in a lot of high performance sports so, friend of mine just got appointed to a job the other day in a high-performance role, and that was one of the, the questions that I asked, what will your 100 days look like? Typically what they do when they come in is immediately because the relationship with the players is everything, is they go out and they try to find uh, ways of making connections with players, and, and that may be socially. So it's not uncommon to go out to dinner, have a few coffees sit around and talk with the leadership group, the team captain, the team leaders, and just get a bit of a connection with them, get them an understanding of what it is that's motivating them, understand what their issues are, and start to build an effective working relationship with the senior players, your staff. Start to see what you've actually got there, independent of the stats, because all the coaches, if you're coming in for a role, you'll know the team stats and you'll know about the players' from a performance perspective but you don't have the relationship with them and it's the relationship that's going to mean the difference between success and failure over the year it's how strong and how how meaningful those relationships are between the coach and the players that will make all the difference following getting to know the people that are there and getting a very clear picture of what's there the second thing very much is about a vision and I often say to coaches and the leaders generally that they call a vision a vision because you can see it One of the the qualities of a great leader in any walk of life, It's certainly a great leader in a team environment, a head coach walking in, they've got to have a vision for the future of the team that they see with such clarity and detail that to them it feels like it's already happened. I say to people, it's you've got to be able to tell the story of the future with the same ease and the same detail as you can tell the story of the past because you're then going to have to sell that vision to the players. But above all pointing that first 100 days, build relationships.
1: Is that why coaches who have been successful at one club aren't successful at another? Is the main reason the relationship they have with the players and the others at the club?
0: Absolutely. And it, look, that's a fascinating question. I often, it's funny, I was talking to a friend of mine in the car yesterday on the way up to Brisbane. I said, if you look at the stats, If you look at the stats, and you look at all right, how many coaches have delivered grand final wins or Super Rugby results or AFL flags or or Test series wins by Ferns or whoever's whoever's won? How many have done it repeatedly? Very, very rarely have you got someone that's won two or three AFL titles or four Super Rugby titles. Very rarely that you've got coaches who are doing repeating success at the highest level. Yet, when you're looking for a new coach if you're another club you say well we want someone who's got a proven track record doing it somewhere else but the number of coaches who a have done it repeatedly in the same club but then have been able to get another club to the same level or another test team to the same level they're very very rare and it's almost like if a coach has been highly successful at one club at that level you, you wouldn't put them automatically at the top of your list because the chances of them repeating success with another group of players in another place, with another set of situations, different politics, different money, different culture, the chance of them repeating success in another club is very, very low. And I, I'm a big believer in the phrase, "pointy a rising tide lifts all the boats. So I'm a big fan of doing your work, really doing a lot of homework, and finding a coach that's roundabout, really passionate and driven and determined to succeed, and they're coming in on the upward upward plane, on the upward lift of their coaching career, their coaching development. So they're going to be desperate to get better. They're going to go better and better and better and better. And as they get better, they take the player group with them and they lift the whole club, trying to get someone to do it again well, very, very rare that anyone can pull that. And the ones who've done it are really considered the greatest of the greatest coaches in the codes.
1: In that case then, let's say a coach has had good success at a club and, and they're starting to think about the, the, uh, the next move in their coaching career. Should they perhaps then be looking at a team that, hasn't, uh, that that has had success or hasn't had success? What's the best fit then for a coach to move to next if they have had success where they are?
0: Yeah, good question. I I think that they've got to decide, coaches are got to decide, where are they in their life? Where are they in the broader perspective of their life? Some of them will make the call to go, for example, if you're in rugby, you might go to Japan, you might go to Europe, you might go to England because the money is a little higher. Uh, we've seen rugby league coaches doing the same, is that, that they make the shift overseas towards the end of their career because maybe they feel they've achieved enough at the highest level of the game, and they're saying, well, is there another competition I can go to where I can use my coaching skills and inspire a team to a high level? We quite often see that. But again, the, the great coaches, the Wayne Bennetts and the, the, the coaches that have just got that desperate need to be great coaches, they've got a, a drive to win and to be successful, they're always going to be looking for an opportunity to win. They're going to be looking for a glove where they can say, you know what, I can go in there and within two years we can be seriously competitive and I can have another opportunity to win. That, that's I, I, They're all going to be motivated different ways, Piney. but I think the great ones are motivated, as are great players. I think they're very motivated by where is there an opportunity for me to win?
1: Is it okay to stay? If you're doing well, is it okay to stay?
0: Oh, absolutely, providing providing you're able to continue the level of energy and innovation and creativity and continue to build great relationship with players. And you've got a sense of renewal and you're bringing in the right people to either grow your culture or sustain the culture you've got providing. You're still thinking like someone who's been there for three months rather than 10 years. If you've got that energetic approach to renewal and change and innovation there's no reason why you can't stay there for 20 years, providing, and I often say to clubs, look, it's unrealistic. It's unrealistic to expect that your coach can win every year. Nobody can win every year. Nobody can win every game, not even the mighty All Blacks in the case, that, that nobody wins all the time. But we know that what very, very good coaches are doing, they're great at creating what we call a culture of competitiveness so that Sure, they may only win every four, every five years, which is pretty good in, a, in a, a competition with 14 to 20 teams. That's every four to five years is a pretty good record. But they may only win every four to five years. But because of their energy and their passion and their innovation, their creativity, they're always competitive. They're, no, they're never any further back than midfield. They're, they're three times out of five in the semi-finals. You know, they're never far away. And all it takes is a bit of luck great opportunity, a couple of good decisions here and there, uh, a season where they don't get a lot of injuries, whatever it may take, but they can win on a regular basis. And providing they're creating that environment, which is sustaining a competitive culture, so they're always close, even if they're not winning, they could stay there forever. And and there's a lot of cases in US college system where coaches have been successful over 20 to 30 years. A friend of mine in New York, has been in the one job for about 30 years, doesn't win all the time. But in the competition they're in, which really matters to Columbia University, they keep popping up every four or five years. They're never far away. And he's managed to do that over 30 years because of the sort of person that he is. Does it matter if your players don't like you? Well, it depends how they manifest their dislike, <laughs> that We've seen players that that dislike coaches and then do everything they can to undermine the coaches and get them out as quickly as possible. We see other groups where they don't like... I remember a very, very good case of a team that I've worked with in AFL where they had a, a senior coach and the senior player, very, very influential and important player who did not like each other and would barely speak. But the way that they worked together when it really mattered was quite remarkable. And the public perception was one big happy team, one big happy family. But on a personal level, there was certainly no coffees and beers and family Christmases together. There was none of that stuff, but they could work together to get the job done. And it's the same as in any other walk of life, isn't it? You don't always love everybody you work with. But if you find people that have got the skill set and the drive and the motivation that just makes things work, then as professionals, we find a way to make it work. We don't necessarily have to be good friends. That takes a bit of maturity because quite often, as you know, we're dealing with young men, young women, even in professional sport. You're not dealing with people quite often in their 30s. You're dealing with people in their late teens, early to mid-20s. Having the emotional maturity as a player to say, look, I really don't like this guy. I don't like their company. I don't want to mix with them socially. However they're a great coach, they're helping me to get better and we're winning a lot of games, so that other stuff doesn't matter to me. Having the emotional maturity, being a professional player to say, look, yeah, the personal relationship, ideally if I've got it, would be great, but what's more important to me is winning, getting better, enjoying my football and making a lot of money. So it it takes a bit of emotional maturity. But to me, it's how do they express that dislike? What I encourage players to do is to never leave the football environment or never to leave the sporting environment with something unsaid. If you've got an issue that you want to talk over with your coach, go and do it. If you're a professional player, never walk out that door with an unresolved issue. Make sure openly and honestly and respectfully you're constantly communicating, regardless of how you feel, and that keeps avenues open and they keep getting the job done and they keep winning games.
1: I want to finish today, Wayne, with a listener question, if I could just come through on text here. Question for Wayne. I've got a son, who has started making rep teams and a couple of sports and he dreams of being a professional sports person. But it's come to my attention, his schoolwork is going downhill lately. Uh, Any advice? He is nearly 13 years old and will start high school next year.
0: At 13, schoolwork absolutely, unconditionally has to be first above all things. There is no, uh, in my mind, there is no circumstance or situation where I would fork on that. Quite often I'll look at things from both sides. But at 13, we know statistically the chances of of your son being high performance in any sport at that level is not necessarily all you think it may be. Well, I hope it is. I hope that they go on and do remarkable things for him and for the family and for his country. But um, the reality is that no matter what happens, they'll always be. Looking for work, they'll always want to be succeeding academically. you want to have multiple opportunities. Even some of the greatest players have got fallback positions with degrees and and uh, they've got situations where they can get into trades and other things. So to me, absolutely, unconditionally, schoolwork number one. And then family and sport and all the other things have to fit in as well. But at 13, has to be academic first.
1: Yeah, and just to follow up then, if he's not that keen on that <laughs> and he just wants to be out playing all the time, is it just about talking to him about balance and in, in, in that regard?
0: Well, I think it needs to be a, an absolute sense of balance. And, and look, we know that, that the best I see in this point is the American system where you go for a U.S. college scholarship and regardless of how much physical talent you've got or whatever your sporting prowess is, they look at your attitude, they look at the way you take care of it, but they look at your academic record because they believe, and I'm very strongly in favour of this, is the way you do anything is the way you do everything. I don't see too many students who are terrible at study, disrespectful at home, awful at taking care of themselves and taking care of their environment, poor with their study habits, don't try at school, but then are remarkable athletes. In, in the context, they may not be the most brilliant students, But the qualities of hard work and commitment and dedication and never giving up that they want to see in sport are reflected in their academic life as well. And the two things do sit very nicely together. And even if they're not a genius and not at the absolute top of the tree academically, the the lessons they learn by working through problems, working together, being and persisting, the lessons they learn through school will carry them through and I believe will make them better athletes. So it, it, it just has to be a nice balance, but schoolwork number one.
1: Fantastic. As always to chat, Wayne, thank you for your time. Look forward to more from you uh, next Wednesday. Hope the weather on the Gold Coast improves soon.
0: Well, I look forward to catching up with you in person over here and showing the delights of the Gold Coast.
1: <laughs> Good on you, mate. <laughs>
0: thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more sports thoughts, subscribe to our newsletter at wgcoaching.com.